This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. I wanted to talk a little bit this morning about the communion. This is something that's very important that we do as we gather together here. It's a very important function of serving God and worshiping God. It's something that is critical to our faith and our worship. Um, and it's, it's something of deep significance. And Paul was trying to relate this to the, to the Corinthians. It seems like they had some issues. They had some problems, the people of Corinth. And I think particularly they had some issues with not treating the communion properly. And they were treating it as just some common thing, some empty ritual. But Paul, I want to open the, the lesson by examining a passage in 1 Corinthians 10. And this gives us kind of the text from, from which we'll base the study off of. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 16, Paul said, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. So he's laying down this, this idea and this principle to them with these questions. The emblems that we partake of, does that not, is that not the communion? There's a, a sense of fellowship. There's a sense of being united. There's a sense of togetherness. And we're participating in this together. It's something that we're all participating in, as he says. For we, though we're many individuals, we're all partaking of that one same bread, that same body. And so we, we are, it signifies something important. It shows an important symbol and an, an important picture of a relationship. And now he says, Behold Israel after the flesh. He uses Israel as an example. He says, Are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What say I then? That the idol is anything? Here he's been talking to them and showing them about idols and their association with idols and the eating the sacrifices, uh, the meat that was sacrificed to idols and the things that are, that are pertaining to idol worship. And he's trying to get them to understand there's a difference between the communion and the table of the Lord and the table of the devils. And he says, what you eat is what you're, what you're partaking of, and what you're consuming is what you are in relationship with and what you're associating with. So he says, what, say, what am I saying? That the idol is anything or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? He's not giving weight or credence to idols and idol worship, but he says the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that you should have fellowship with devils, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. So again, Paul is showing the inconsistency of trying to worship God, but still participating in acts of idol worship, still participating in things that are connected to idolatry. And you have to consider the surroundings of the Corinthians. Uh, they had come out of, these Christians that lived at Corinth, had come out of and were still being influenced by the practices of idolatry. It was an idolatrous city. It was an idolatrous culture. And so what he's laying down here is an explanation in regards to what they participate in. It shows what you approve. It shows uh, who you are. It defines who you are. It shows to whom they belong. So eating of those sacrifices shows that relationship. So there's a lot in this passage that's important to understand as it relates to the act of participating in communion. 
But I want to focus for a little bit as, as we continue in the study about what Paul says here in, in verse number 18. He says, Behold Israel after the flesh. He's saying, look at Israel, look at the practices, look at the things that they did, and we can derive some meaning from that in relation to communion. And I think there's some important things we can learn as we behold Israel after the flesh uh, to, to show the relationship between eating the sacrifices of the altar and the people uh, that get to eat of that and the relationship that is all connected here. Uh, because there is, there's, there's multiple parties involved in the sacrifice and the consuming of the sacrifice. So when we look back at the Old Testament practices, uh, someone that was making an, an offering would bring the sacrifice to the tabernacle, and there was a portion of that that belonged to God. So God had participation in the sacrifices that, that they would bring to the temple. In Leviticus 3.16, it says, The priest shall burn them upon the altar. It is the food of the offering made by fire for a sweet savor. All the fat is the Lord's. And so the fire would consume all of that, that portion, and that was God's portion. That belonged to Him. The, the fat belonged to Him. Uh, and so He participated in the sacrifices that were being brought to the temple. Now there was also another party involved in the sacrifice. That is the, the person offering the sacrifice. The person that's bringing the sacrifice to the tabernacle. They also had a part and were participating in this act. But not only were they participating in that they were bringing the sacrifice, God instructed on particular types of sacrifices that the person bringing the sacrifice got a piece of that meat to eat and to consume. It was something very special, something holy. In Leviticus 7, verse 15, it says, All the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day it's offered. He shall not leave any of it till the morning. So there was, there was some regulations around how they were to consume this, you know, and, and uh, when they were supposed to consume this, and what parts of the sacrifices or, or which types of sacrifices they were supposed to consume of. But there are sacrifices that the person offering gets to eat of as well. So they get to participate in the sacrifice in that sense of eating. And it shows a relationship between God and the person that's offering the sacrifice because they're both eating of this same sacrifice. Uh, now, there was another party involved, that is the priest, the person who is this mediator between the person bringing the sacrifice and God, and they're the one officiating and handling the sacrifice on behalf of this person and, and, and presenting that to God and doing all the things that they need to do. Now, the priests also had a portion. They were participating in the sacrifice because they also had a portion to consume and to eat. Uh, if you look at Numbers chapter 18, this is where God specifically talks to Aaron and his sons, and he's telling them about the types of sacrifices that they were allowed to participate in and have. And he says here in Numbers 18, Therefore thou and thy sons with thee shall keep your priest's office for everything of the altar and within the veil. So they had responsibility. Aaron and his sons had everything that was inside the tabernacle and in the veil, the Ark of the Covenant. They had a responsibility over those things, and it was most holy. These are the holy things. And he says, you shall serve. I have given your priest office to you as a service of a of gift. This was a special blessing to be part of the priesthood. And because they had this special place, uh, well, of course, he says, the stranger that comes nigh shall be put to death, who is only for Aaron and his sons. And because they had this special place of service, God gave them their portions and their, 
their uh, provisions. And the Lord spake to Aaron and said, Behold, I have also given thee charge of mine heave offerings of all the hallowed things of the children of Israel. Unto thee have I given them by reason of the anointing and thy sons by ordinance forever. So Aaron and his sons had a special place and they received this, this gift. This shall be thine of the most holy things reserved from the fire. Every oblation of theirs, every meat offering of theirs, every sin offering of theirs, and every trespass offering of theirs, which they shall render to me, shall be most holy for thee and for thy sons. In the most holy place shalt thou eat it, every male shall eat it, it shall be holy unto thee. So we see here the priests got a portion of the meat that was offered as well, and it was most holy for Aaron and the priests and his sons. Um, Aaron as the high priest and his sons as the priest. It was most holy. What they got to consume was, it wasn't just some backyard barbecue that they were going to. It wasn't just some worthless piece of meat that they cooked up and they got on sale at the store. This was a special sacrifice that was being brought to, to honor God. And it was a relationship between God who is consuming that, the offerer that is consuming that, and the priest who is participating in that. And it's something very sacred and very special. And that's how it was viewed and that's what God wanted them to understand. Extremely special. It was something extremely special. And they were blessed. It was a gift that they were able to eat of those most holy sacrifices. Um, now, again, there was regulations around how they were supposed to eat. So for the priests and even for the people that were, that were eating of those sacrifices, you had to be holy. You had to be holy in order to eat of these. You couldn't have your uncleanness. You couldn't be... You couldn't become defiled and still eat of the holy sacrifice. In Leviticus chapter 7, verse 20, it says, The soul that eateth of the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings that pertains to the Lord, having his uncleanness upon him, even that soul shall be cut off from his people. So this tells us something about the way they were supposed to uh, honor this sacrifice. They had, to, they had to maintain their cleanness so that they could continue to eat of that when it was offered. Moreover, the soul that shall touch any unclean thing, as the uncleanness of man or any unclean beast or any abominable unclean thing, if they go and touch those things and then eat of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which pertains to the Lord, even that soul shall be cut off from his people. So what we're, what we're seeing here is that it was a very special thing. It was not common food, and, and they have to eat of it in an undefiled state. They themselves have to be kept pure, and they have to keep the sacrifice pure. Uh, there's other verses and other passages we could read about and study where it says, if this touches anything, that becomes holy. It's like you couldn't, you, you, and you were not supposed to contaminate this sacrifice with unholy things. Um, and so there was procedures around all of this. If someone treated it as common food, would God be pleased with that? Do you think the partakers, if, if they had brought this great sacrifice to God, and it was something very special, and they just treated it uh, like common food and didn't take it seriously that God would be happy about the sacrifices they're bringing? I don't think so. And in fact, we have an example. When you look at Leviticus chapter 10, now in that chapter, Nadab and Abihu, uh, they bring strange fire before the Lord, and uh, they are consumed with the flames from God because they brought strange fire, fire that, that God did not command. God did not regulate uh, for them to do that. And Aaron, their father, was very distressed about this. 
Now, if you go on further in that chapter towards the end, Moses finds the, the sin offering that was made. He, he says he finds the goat of the sin offering, and he commands Aaron and his sons to eat of it, like they're supposed to. But he comes and he finds that it's just totally been burned, and they didn't eat it. And Aaron or Moses gets angry about this. And he goes to, to Aaron and he says, uh, he says, why have you not eaten of this sacrifice the way God told us to? I mean, you just saw, basically, the, the idea is this. You just saw your sons break the commandments of God, and they died. Why are you breaking the commandments of God? And so Moses is very upset about this, that they're, they're still not getting the idea that they, as the priesthood, need to maintain holiness and show and, and validate God in the eyes of the people by following His commandments. And Moses is very upset. But it's interesting what Aaron's response is when Moses comes to him. In Leviticus chapter 10, I don't have this in the, in the slides, but uh, in... Verse 19, Aaron says to Moses, Behold, this day have they offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and such things have befallen me. His sons have just been killed. I mean, his sons have just died. And it was a righteous reason that they died, um, you know, as far as God's part goes. And they weren't allowed to mourn for that. But then he says, If I had eaten this sin offering today, should it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? And when Moses heard that, he was content. So that stayed Moses' anger. And I think in that situation, it shows us that we have to have the right frame of mind and the right seriousness and the right attitude about consuming the sacrifices that belong to God. Um, that, I think that example is a clear example of that. And so everyone participating in it had to do it in a holy way, had to maintain their cleanness, had to take it seriously. And eating of this sacrifice showed something special. It shows a relationship between the people that are partaking. Like It all centers around the sacrifice and the meat that they're eating, but it shows this connection between all three of these parties. And what it's showing is that they are the people of God. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 11. I will set my tabernacle among you, and, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their bondmen. And I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you go upright. God freed these slaves from the bondage of Egypt. He broke the, the, the chains that were holding them there in Egypt and freed them and made them something new and sent His special people and told them, if you follow my commandments, you will be my kingdom of priests. That's what He told them in, Leviticus, or in Exodus chapter 19 when they're at the mountain, they receive the commandments. He says, you will be my special people. You are my special treasure. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And how do they know that? Because of the relationship that is shown in eating of the sacrifice, in partaking of this very special, very special, very holy sacrifice that they all get to consume and participate in. Um, and so it shows a relationship. Now, that's, think about that now. As Paul, we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and Paul is saying, is there not a relationship that is shown when we're partaking of these emblems, the, the, the cup of the Lord and the, and the bread of the Lord? There is a relationship that is shown. And he says, behold, Israel after the flesh, which we've very quickly and briefly examined, Israel after the flesh. It really is important. It really is something special. Because for us, there is a great significance. You know, the person bringing the sacrifice, gets to partake of the sacrifice. And the person 
for us that brought the sacrifice is Jesus. He is the offerer of the sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The ultimate sacrifice. No more sacrifices are needed. No more people will bring forth offerings of this, of this type of sacrifice. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. So Jesus lays down the perfect sacrifice, his own life, his own body. He gives the perfect blood that is able to cleanse our conscience, as, as even in Hebrews chapter 9 explains, the blood of bulls and goats was good enough to clean their flesh and make them approachable to God. But the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience and makes us acceptable and approachable to God, even to an even greater degree, is what the argument of the book of Hebrews is. But Jesus is the one who brings the offering, and there is a relationship here because Jesus gets to partake of the sacrifice, as we'll see here in just a moment. But in Hebrews chapter 10, it shows us Jesus is the one who brings the sacrifice. Now, this... This continues in Hebrews 10. There's a whole long passage I wanted to read, but I'll, I broke it up on purpose so that it wouldn't just be a, a big block of text that we read through. But there's something significant being shown here. He is the offerer. He is the sanctifier of, of the people that come to him. So in the next, next passage that follows this, he talks about those who are sanctified by him. So the offerer and... Now we go to those who are cleansed by this offering. For by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost is also a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquity will I remember no more. Now, that's a quote from an Old Testament prophecy. So he quotes that passage. He says, this is what the Holy Ghost was saying when he had said this before. And he goes on. Now, where remission of these is, remission of sins, when that happens, there's no more offering for sin. We don't need a continual offering the way the Israelites did because Jesus did it once for all. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holy, holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This describes to us the process of being saved by Jesus. We are sanctified by him. The perfect offering sanctifies us. If we our, if, if we have our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, that's a, that's, a, a, that's a clear reference to being baptized into Christ and being covered by His blood. And when that happens, we are made approachable to God and we can come now to Him. Now, there's more to this, which Peter explains in 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 9. He says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him that called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what happens when you're cleansed by the blood of Christ. Your conscience is cleaned, 
you are taken out of darkness and you are brought into his light and into a relationship with him and into a closeness with him. Have boldness to enter into the throne, he says. Have boldness to enter into the presence of God through Jesus. He says, which in time past were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Which in time you had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. We are the special people, just the way God told the Israelites, I will be your God, you will be my people. If you obey me, you will be my kingdom of priests. That's what the church is. If we obey him, we are his kingdom of priests. We are made part of this special priesthood. And because we are priests in the priesthood, we also get the benefit of eating of the sacrifice that has been brought by this one and true perfect sacrifice that Jesus brought. Because we're priests, we get to eat of that as well. That's why Jesus gave us this commandment and this ordinance for us to partake of the communion, like he did in Matthew 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. This is something that was so holy. This was something that was so special. And he says, You get to eat of this now because they're his disciples. Think about those sacrifices that were brought to the temple that God was partaking of and consuming. The offerer was, was getting to eat part of it and the people that were the priests get to eat of it as well. And he says, this special sacrifice, this body, they all are, are partaking in it. You get to eat this. And he says, take, he took the cup and he gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Do you see what is being pictured here and what is being shown? There is a relationship that is being shown to us in this action. We get to eat of the most holy portion. We get to eat and drink of this cup of the Lord and, the, and eat of the body of, of the Lord. This isn't just some common thing. This isn't just some empty ritual. This isn't just some eating of an unleavened uh, cracker and drinking some grape juice. That's not what that is. And it's not just some thing that we do by rote or it's not just something we do and just go through the motions. This is something very, very significant and very, very special. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? It's, it's so much more than just this, this practice. of and, and we do this every week, and so we might uh, lose the significance of it. And we might just kind of just, oh, okay, we gotta go, okay, we're going to do this part, now we're going to do this part of the service where we do the communion. And once we're done with that, and we just kind of skip over the, the meaning of it and the significance the significance of it. I know I do. It's easy to get caught in a trap and just kind of rush through it and brush over it like it's not something important, but it is. It's the communion of the blood of Christ. And the bread is the communion of the body of Christ. And it's something that we get to enjoy together, not just with each other, but with Jesus. Because he's the offerer and he is the one consuming the sacrifice as well. And, and what we're doing is showing something important, his sacrifice, his death. We're showing, uh, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, as often as you eat this bread and that you drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. It's, a, it's an important symbol. It's an important picture. It's, it's very deep and meaningful and significant when we partake of this. Again, not just some common food. This is the most holy thing that we get to eat of.
because we're part of Christ. Now, just as the priests and the people that were offering the sacrifice, when they were told to consume this, they had to eat it in a certain way, and they had to maintain their holiness. The same thing is true for us. We have to be living a holy life. Because why would we partake of the cup of the Lord if we're not living a holy life? In 1 Corinthians uh, In first yeah, in First Corinthians, uh, chapter eleven, Paul is making that case to them. You you have to be living in a holy way, and in, and in chapter eleven, as he tells them, you're showing the Lord's death till He comes. He gives them more teaching and more understanding because they were doing it the entirely wrong way. They were not treating the sacrifice of Christ as special in the first place. But they there was a deeper problem. First Corinthians eleven, verse twenty seven, he says, "Wherefore whosoever shall eat this bread." And drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty. What are you guilty of? If we don't treat this right and don't act right and don't treat this with the value that it deserves, what are we guilty of? You are guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. That's a very serious thing. That shows us the serious nature of partaking of the sacrifice. He says, let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. You're not treating this as something holy and special. And so part of taking it in a holy manner means coming to it with the right attitude, treating this as the body of Christ and as the sacrifice that is most holy that we get to participate. But again, or, or even more than that, rather, which is what I think Paul was trying to get at, is that we must be living a holy life in the first place. Because partaking of communion properly begins before we even come together for the service and have that part of the service and get to consume that. Let me say that again. Partaking of communion properly begins before we even gather for communion. That's what Paul was saying to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 21. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. We can't have it both ways, living an unholy and unpure life, but coming to the services and partaking of this most holy sacrifice. We can't live with, with two feet in each camp, or one foot in each camp, rather. We have to live with both feet squarely planted in one or the other, and it's up to us to decide. Paul told them in 2 Corinthians 6, he wrote a lot about this kind of thing to the Corinthians. They seem to have a lot of trouble with with these things and this evil influence. And it makes sense when you examine and think about the, the culture and the environment of Corinth. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, he says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now that's a reference to uh, farming, when you had these, these animals yoked together. And he says, don't be unequally yoked. If, if, these, uh, if these animals were unequally yoked, one would be pulling maybe pulling away and would lead the other one astray, and it would just kind of be a conflict. They needed to be yoked together, moving in the same direction, and they would accomplish what they needed to accomplish. And he tells the Corinthians, using this example, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, a lot of people use this to, to say something about marriage, and, you know, I think there's, there's something to, to that in the, in the concept of 
making sure we're marrying people that we're moving in the right direction together with. But it's more than that. What fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? This is in general. The relationships we choose to have in our lives, the things that we choose to participate in in our lives, that's what this is about. Don't go join yourself to things that are going to pull you away from Christ. And that's what he's saying. What fellowship does righteousness have with unrighteousness? None. They're incompatible. It does not go together. They are polar opposites. What communion does light have with darkness? None. You cannot mix these two. What concord hath Christ, Jesus, the great high priest, the precious Lamb of God, our, our great God and our Savior? What concord and relationship does that, does Christ have with Belial, some idol, some uh, heathen and pagan uh, deity? What relationship is there? None. Or what part does he that believeth have with an infidel? None. There's no compatibility. There's not a mixing of, of ourselves with those who are following these rituals and these practices or don't believe in Christ. And, and we can't be joining ourselves and having these tight relationships with because it's going to damage us and pull us away. What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? You are the temple of the living God. So what business do we have tying ourselves to the, the rest of the world? That's what Paul is trying to get them to understand. For God said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and you shall be my people. If we're the special people of God, why are we taking God's holiness and dragging it through the mud of the world and, and defiling our own selves? That's what Paul is asking them and trying to get them to consider. Now think about this. Remember that Paul is writing to these Corinthians. Now, in this culture of the Corinthians, in this Roman world, in this Greek world, uh, each city, each major city, had a protector deity. And, you know, you think about what, what happened in Acts chapter, uh, I think it's Acts chapter 17 or so, where Paul goes into the city of Ephesus, and he, they preach against, they, they just preach the message of Christ. The people were in an uproar, and for a whole hour they chanted, Great is Diana, the goddess of the Ephesians. That's why Diana was that, that city's protector deity, and that's who they idol, that was their idol and they worshipped. For the Corinthians, it was uh, Aphrodite or Venus. The same, that's the same. Aphrodite is the Roman version and Venus is the Greek version. But it's the same character, the same deity. And they said that was their, uh, that was their protector deity. Now Aphrodite uh, or Venus is the goddess of of love. And it is thought that there were temples set up there where worshipers would worshipers would go to pay a temple prostitute to, to have fornication, and this was this act of worship to this goddess of love. To the so called goddess rather. And so think about that. This is the city of Corinth, consumed with that. Think about the evil influences that our Corinthian brethren were surrounded by as Paul pleads with them and, and begs with them and teaches them constantly to not put themselves into pursuing relationships with people and, and worshiping with practice that would make them unholy. In the Greek and Roman cultures, there was deities for all sorts of things. There was, for, there was gods of nature. They had uh, specific deities for the sea like Poseidon, or like the sun and the stars, uh, 
maybe a category of provision or labor. They had hunting, a, a goddess of hunting, and a, a god of agriculture, and a god of craftsmen. They had gods for maybe the category of conquest. They had a god of war. They had a god for the category of prosperity and wealth. They had a god for entertainment, like music. And they had gods that were surrounded around, uh, centered around the idea of self-indulgence, beauty. They had goddesses of beauty and, and even of, of sexual activity and even alcohol. Oh, they had gods that were centered around that. How, how convenient is it that these gods are designed to give people exactly what they want? That's, that's the, the foolishness of idol worship. Is we're not, it's not some great deity. We're worshiping our own desires. And although today there's no deities attached to these uh, concepts and these pursuits, in our culture, these things are still very much served with religious fervor. It's all around us. People consumed with, with sexual things, with beauty and with alcohol and with wealth and with entertainment and with business and with work and with labor and with nature. People just consumed with these things. And so the problem for us and the thing that's important for us to recognize is this is very much relevant to you and I today when Paul is telling them, don't associate yourself with idolatrous things. And an idolatrous thing is anything that will distract you and take you away from Christ. As Christians, we are still very much influenced by these evils. And it's important for us to understand the difference. We cannot partake of the cup of the devils, go out and live crazy in the world, and do all the things and join into the things that the world is doing, and then come... Uh, turn around on the other on Sundays and come over and partake of the communion and say, well, we're holy people. We can't do that. We cannot live that inconsistent. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John pleaded and wrote to the church, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And we have to make a decision. We cannot have one foot in each camp and flip-flop and be double-minded and walk two paths. We have to walk one path and choose one path. Matthew chapter 6, 24. No man can serve two masters. We can't serve the idol of, of labor and be gone every day to our jobs and working every day and then miss, you know, let's, let's, let's take the, this example to its extreme and somebody is consumed with work and so even Sundays get overtaken with work and they can't ever make church and then they can't ever make any studies and then they can't make any other activities with the church because they're so consumed with their job. You can't serve two masters. You're either going to hate one and think of this, the Lord is your master or your work is your master. You're either going to love Christ and be consumed with things that are related to Christ or you're going to be consumed with your labor and your work and your career. You cannot love both at the same time and serve both diligently at the same time. You're going to hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. In this case, mammon is money. You can't serve God and money. You can't treat both of these with equal value. One is less valuable than the other, and it's sure not God. So we have to make a decision and make up our minds and live a life that is holy, and that begins... Living that life is what 
leads us up to the blessing of participating in the table of the Lord in the first place. That's why I said partaking of if communion begins long before we even gather for communion. It's how we live our lives that will determine whether or not we're partaking of this in a worthy manner. Yes, we ought to be thinking about Jesus when we partake of it, but it's much more. We ought to actually be living like Jesus out in the world when, we, when we're saying that we're partakers of this because we are saying that we are members of the body of Christ. And if we say that and then we go out and live like the world, what are people going to say and what are people going to think and what kind of damage will we cause to our own family in Christ? Because remember, the relationship is not just between the person offered, that offered the sacrifice, Jesus, and the priest that get to partake of it. There's another aspect of this, and that is the relationship that we have with one another. We being many are one body. Remember in Hebrews 10, we read about that sanctifier and those sanctified. But again, it doesn't stop there. It's a relationship of those who are among the sanctified. Hebrews 10 continues. He says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. Let us consider one another and provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This is about our relationship with each other, keeping ourselves pure and holy so that we don't influence others and importantly, we don't destroy ourselves. If we sin willfully, if we go on purpose and commit those acts and we forsake the commandments of the Lord, we forsake the holiness that He's brought us into, we forsake the cleansing of the conscience that He's brought us, we forsake the royal priesthood that He's made us a part of, and we forsake the family that we belong to, if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. What an interesting, what an interesting way that it's, that, that, idea is developed in Hebrews 10. If we are part of the sacrifice, there's no more sacrifice that needs to be made for us. But if we go and sin on purpose, there's no more sacrifice that can be made for you. But, it, but all that's left in your life is a looking, a certain fearful looking of judgment for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Being partakers of the most holy sacrifice means that we are partaking of this together as a family. And the importance of that aspect can't be overstated. We have to encourage one another so we don't fall into lives of sin. And, and this is an added line of defense against the evil influence of idolatry in this world. And if we turn our backs and forsake the gathering together, we're going to become weak to the point that we commit sin willfully, on purpose, and then we won't have anything to look forward to except judgment. Finally, as we bring this to a close, the communion is so much more than an empty ritual. So much more than just bread and grape juice. What we're showing is a relationship again, and we're making a declaration that we belong to Christ. That we are those that are sanctified by His blood. That we are those that are His holy people, people of the resurrection. That we are His royal priesthood, living in this world as His people of the resurrection. We're showing something and signifying something, and this is what 
what Jesus was saying in John chapter 6, verse 53. Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my body is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. There is, there is such a special relationship pictured around the table of the Lord. And I hope that you realize the great special value that God has placed upon you as making us part of His people and He being our God. And I hope that we can place the right value and the right emphasis on the communion and not just treat it as some common thing or some empty ritual that we do. It's much more important than that. And I hope that we'll take that, this idea that Paul is relating in 1 Corinthians, the importance of it, and let it do what it needs to do in changing the way we live our lives because that's the true purpose and true meaning of of this relationship in the first place. We cannot be partakers of the world and the cup of devils and then turn around and come be partakers of the Lord's table. We need to live consistent, holy lives. And I hope that, that this study has been beneficial to you in that way. And, and I hope that it ha- perhaps has brought some conviction to us all so we can examine ourselves, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let a man examine himself and so partake of it. Let's take a look at our lives. Let's make sure that we're living consistent lives. And if we're not, we have some work to do. We have some repenting to do. We have some coming to Christ and to be, ask Him to continually cleanse us in His blood so that we can be made holy and approachable to Him again and be worthy to partake of, of the emblems that He's given to us, this special benefit. Um, and so if you're here this morning and you feel conviction, a sense of conviction about sins in your life, about things that you're doing that you know that are inconsistent, and you want help with those, you want prayers for those, the blessing of communion is that we're in this together. It is a, that is a great benefit and, again, a line of defense against evil in this world. Don't close yourself off to the family of Christ. Let's pray together and let's, let's be together in this helping each other, provoking to love and the good works. Because your soul is worth it. And we all feel that way about each other, and we should. And so, if you need prayers of the church, come. And, and of course, we don't know the, the hearts and minds of, of any person. And we haven't talked about the first principles, uh, necessarily. But we have talked about the cleansing blood of Jesus and, and the, the concept of baptism. When we're baptized in Christ, He cleanses us, He forgives us of our sins, He cleans our conscience, He makes us part of the royal priesthood. If you're not part of that priesthood, of course, we need to be a part of that. So uh, these, these blessings are available for those who will come as we stand and we sing. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.